Hey, my name is Phil, and this is my wife, Meredith, and we are the pastors here at Cornerstone Church. We're so glad that you have connected with us here today and that you're getting ready to listen to a message that we know is going to build a resilient faith in your life. Right now, in this moment and in our days ahead, let's continue declaring Jesus over every situation. Enjoy the message. Well, I'm so glad to be here. My parents are still in town, y'all, and uh, they're right down here on the front row. If you haven't met them yet, please make sure that you come say hi. They're only with us for a couple of weeks, and we're having a great time at the moment getting to just spend special time together. They live in Sydney, Australia, which is where I grew up, and so they've flown 9,000 miles to hang out together. And we're having a good time just getting to know them in a new way. And we actually purchased this little box of conversational starter questions so that we can get to know each other because... um, When you grow up in your parents' house, you don't always um, think to get to know them in the way that they're so focused on you when you're a child in someone else's home. And so so we're getting to know all kinds of things about them, like tell me about your wedding day and tell me about your childhood friends and all of these kind of things. And and, uh, ask them a question about, you know, a time that they got into a fight early on in life. And and so they shared that with us, and I want to share it with everybody right here uh, because I can so they, uh, they were telling Meredith and I the other day that one of the first fights that they got in when they were dating, all these decades ago before my brothers and I came along, um, they were dating in New Zealand, which is where we were all born, and, and uh, they had gone out for a date. Dad had drove them out to a beach, and they parked the car, and they went out onto the beach so that they could watch the, uh, the sun set over the horizon. And this was a, a beautiful scene. And my dad is deep into philosophy at the time. He's, he's studying the great philosophers of, of uh, history past. And, and my mom just wants to be loved. <laughs> and so they're sitting there out on the beach. And they haven't really had much physical contact in their relationship. Like no holding hands, no kissing, all this kind of stuff. And my mom, she just wants to be loved. And so she leans in and she puts her head on my dad's shoulder. And my dad scoots out of the way like this. My mom thinks, well, maybe he doesn't know what I'm trying to do. He can be a little bit thick at times, and so I'm just going to lean in again and put my head on his shoulder. My dad leans across, pulls out like this, and he says, don't you know that Plato says that true love is devoid of touch? (laughs) One of the dumbest things that I've ever heard. And my mom said, that's what Plato says? What does Mrs. Plato have to say about that? (laughs) And so she storms off from the beach, walks back to the car, goes to get in the car, only to realize that the car is locked and my dad has the key. And now she has to stand outside and wait for my dad to come back to the car so that they can drive home in awkward silence back to wherever they were going. And that was one of the first times that my parents ever got into a fight and, uh, and we've just been loving getting to know stories like that and ways that they came together and things from early in life. We actually went out of town last weekend, and, and uh, it's always surprising to me. I always forget this. When you live in a city, when you leave the city, I'm always reminded that Ohio is basically one big farm that has a few cities in it. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this or you, you know, you've seen this when you go out of town, that when you're driving out of the city limits, you just begin to see corn and beans everywhere. Cornfield, bean field, cornfield, bean field. 
And what I noticed last week when we were driving is a, a bean field where there was a corn stalk that was growing in it. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Just a, a, a bean field where everything is flat except for one corn stalk that grows in it. We have a photo right here. This is called a volunteer corn. If there's anyone that's a farmer, you know about this, you know about where this comes from. This happens because, according to farmers, I don't know about why we do this, but we alternate our corn and our beans. It's something for the soil, and it helps things grow properly, and there's some kind of science in and why we do it. And so sometimes a corn seed will fall into the bean seeds. And then when it gets planted, you don't know the difference, and all of a sudden you have a bean field with a corn stalk that's growing in it and standing out. It's standing out above everything else. And as we were driving along last week and I saw this thing, I heard God say somewhat more louder than audibly, I'm looking for a people that will be a corn stalk in a bean field. I'm looking for a people that will stand out above everything else. I'm looking for a people that will not bow, that are not trying to look like everything else in society. I'm looking for some people that are willing to be a cornstalk in a bean field. I will not bow down to society and what society says that we need to do. And so we're going to look at a familiar portion of Scripture in Daniel chapter 3 today. You have uh, probably read this Scripture before. But we're going to look at it from a new perspective. If you are taking notes and you like to write down a message title, you can call this message Cornstalks and Beanfields. Or if you uh, like more churchy terms, then uh, you can call this message I Will Not Bow. I Will Not Bow. Anytime that there's a moral revolution that takes place in society, it essentially always follows the same trend. This has been happening for thousands of years. Whenever society tries to shift us to accepting a new practice or a new belief or a new people group or, or whatever it is, we are essentially encouraged to follow the same three steps. What happens is there is a push to sympathize and then a push to normalize and then a push to demonize. This happens time and time again. This is happening today in modern-day America. This, is happening, this happened thousands of years ago in ancient Babylon that we're getting ready to read about. This has been happening time and time again, a push to sympathize, a push to normalize, and then a push to demonize. These three things happen time and time again. Anytime that there is a push to change our perspective and our belief and our uh, expectations and our values, there is a push to do these Three different things. And so as we look through Daniel chapter 3 today, I want us to consider this scripture with these three terms. This is our perspective for today. So it says this in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1 King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Before we, need to, uh, before we move on, I just need to pause right there because it's significant about why Nebuchadnezzar was building this idol of himself. Right before this t- takes place in the chapter beforehand, Nebuchadnezzar receives a dream and then this dream is interpreted by Daniel. God gives Daniel the interpretation of this dream and the reality is, is that Nebuchadnezzar has been told that your kingdom is going to be so great that it is going to assume and it is going to conquer other empires that are around. And so he receives this interpretation from God and then he builds an idol of himself to show how significant he's going to be. It begs the question, what are you going to do with the thing that God gives you? 
when God gives you something, what are you going to do with that thing? Nebuchadnezzar built an idol of himself. What are you going to do with the thing that God gives you? What are you going to do with the skills that God gives you? What are you going to do with the talent that God gives you? What are you going to do with the finances that God gives you? Are you interested and focused on building your own kingdom, building your own bank account, or are you trying to build what God is doing and building God's glory, not your own? What are you doing with the thing that God gives you? And I, I, just, have to, I just have to geek out on the numbers that are right here because uh, I, get, I get sometimes lost in numbers and data and metrics and all of these kind of things. But it says that this idol, this structure was built 10 times taller than it was wide. And this is significant. You might not understand why this is significant, but I have to go back to first-year physiology, and it tells us that the human body is typically seven times taller than it is wide. He was built 10 times taller than he was wide. But this is never the case. Even a very tall, skinny person is only in a ratio of like eight to one. But we are never 10 to one ratios. What this tells us is that he was projecting an image that was not true. He was trying to make himself seem bigger than he actually was. Isn't this just like what the devil does? Tries to make himself seem bigger than he is. Tries to intimidate you. Tries to make it seem like he's more important, like he has more authority, like he has more significance. Isn't this just what the devil does? That's all the devil really can do is intimidate you because when you are a child of God, he has no power over you. He just tries to intimidate you. He just tries to pull your direction and your attention off of God. That's what the devil tries to do. He tries to make it seem like he is bigger than he actually is. But my God doesn't need to seem like he's bigger than he actually is. My God is bigger. My God cannot describe himself as bigger than he actually is. My God is bigger. My God does not need to show himself as faithful. He is faithful. He doesn't need to project himself as holy. He is holy. He is these things. He doesn't need to show. He cannot show himself as bigger than he actually is. God is big. This is, uh, this is significant because the enemy wants to make you think that he's bigger than he actually is, but God cannot do that. God cannot overestimate his size, his influence, his power, but the enemy tries to do that again and again and again. This is what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do here. He's trying to position and posture himself as bigger than he actually is. This is how you draw yourself when you're trying to project an image that is bigger than you actually are. And so what Nebuchadnezzar then begins to do is to have a ribbon cutting. And he wants to bring all the important people together in his kingdom. He brings together all the people that he has appointed to see this incredible structure that he has built of himself. And so he brings everyone together and he wants to have this massive celebration. And this is where the normalize, oh, this is where the sympathizing begins. Remember our three different words? This is where the sympathizing begins. As Nebuchadnezzar takes something that is evil, he takes something that is wicked, and he begins to encourage people to celebrate and accept this thing. This is where the sympathizing comes in. We read about it in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. It says, And the herald proclaimed, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the, I don't even know what all these instruments are, the bagpipe, the guitar, the keys, the bass, the drums. How many think we should get a bagpipe at Cornerstone Church? <laughs> Cornerstone Church bagpipe coming next week. 
it will not be. Uh, when you hear any kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So this has now shifted from a sympathizing to a rapid normalizing. From sympathizing, this is now a forced normalizing. This has happened for thousands and thousands of years. It was happening back then and it's happening today. You know what's happening today, right? You see this happening time and time again that you've been in your business for the last 20 years and now you're told by your manager, supervisor, HR director that we are now going to start celebrating X and we're going to do it in this way at this time and you don't get a say about it. We expect you to get on board with this. This is happening today. This is the forced sympathizing and normalizing that is taking place in our culture. And the threat to compromise has been taking place for a long time. If you have been a Christian for more than a week, then you know that there is a threat to compromise that takes place very early in your life. There's always a push for you to deviate from God's standards and to accept the world's standards and to accept the standards of our media and to accept the standards of our culture. There's a push to compromise if you don't, then this will happen. This is the threat of the enemy, and this is the motto of our world. If you don't, then this is going to happen. If you don't, this happens. If you don't, this happens. This is, the, this is the motto that is repeated again and again and again by our world. If you don't, then this is going to happen. We just, uh, we just talked about one of these examples, that if you don't accept this in the workplace, if you don't celebrate this in the workplace, then you will never be promoted. You might be fired if you don't celebrate and accept this practice. If you don't, then this will happen. How about this example? If you don't get the vaccine, then you cannot work here. If you don't, then this will happen. If you don't... How's this one for the parents? If you don't put your kids in a travel team, then they will never be successful. If you don't, then this will happen. If you, this is the repetition that the world continues to communicate to us. If you don't, then this will happen. Or how about for all of our couples that are dating? If you don't sleep together, then you will not have a healthy marriage. This is the pressure of our world today that if you don't try before you buy, if you don't test drive the car, then you cannot have a successful marriage. And let me just say that my wife and I entered into marriage as virgins, and it was one of the greatest blessings that we have in our lives today is that we don't have comparison with other people. The lie of the enemy says, if you don't, then this is going to happen. If you don't, then this is going to happen. This is the lie that the enemy continues to propagate. This is what culture continues to tell us. And God is looking for a people that will not bow down to society, that will not bow down to culture. God is looking for a people that say, I will not bow down. I know that my foundation is found in Christ. I will not bow down. I know that my promotion is found in Christ. I will not bow down to the pressures of society. I will not bow down. I am standing on the firm foundation of Christ in good times and on bad times. I will not bow down. I will not bow down. This is what God is looking for, is for a people that will not bow down, that will continue standing for the things of God. I will not bow down. What's wild to me is how quickly everybody does bow down in this story. The music starts playing, the 
the bagpipe starts playing and the keys start playing, music starts playing, and immediately everyone starts bowing down. Oh, great king, we worship you. Oh, great Nebuchadnezzar, we worship you. We worship you. Immediately, everyone starts bowing down. And not only this, they start looking for other people that are not bowing down. Not only are they bowing down themselves, they're also saying, well, if we are going to bow down, if we have to bow down, then everybody has to bow down. And they notice a few people that have not bowed down. Verse 12, it says, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs. This is some people that are going to King Nebuchadnezzar. There are a certain Jews who you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, uh, these men, O oh king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Sympathizing, normalizing, demonizing. This is cancel culture. Sympathizing, normalizing, demonizing. If we have to do it, you do too. And we're going to make sure that you get punished if you don't do it. We're going to make sure that, that you get thrown in the fiery furnace. We're going to make sure that you lose your job. We're going to make sure that you get cussed out on social media. We're going to make sure that you get ostracized from society. We're going to make sure that you get punished if you don't fit in. If you don't accept the ways of the world, if you don't accept the things and the standards that the media tells us are the things that we should accept, we're going to make sure that you get punished and you get canceled. This is what happens. And so Nebuchadnezzar is furious about this. These three boys that he has installed in leadership, these three teenagers that he has appointed into this leadership position, he's furious that these three boys have not accepted the standard that he has set up. And so he calls them into his presence and he says, is this true? Is this true that I put you into this position of leadership and then you have not accepted the standard that I have laid out, that you are not doing the thing that I told everyone that they needed to do? I love what these boys respond. He says, if this is true, then you're headed towards the fiery furnace. What these boys respond is so key for us today, and I want to tap down on just a couple of these things right here because there's three things that we need to pull out from their response. This is what the boys respond to King Nebuchadnezzar's threat of being thrown in the fiery furnace. It says this in verse 17. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not worship, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Our God is able to save. We believe that he will. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. Our God is able. We believe that he can. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. We have this kind of faith when your faith is not built in uh, the success of your prayers. You have a, a shallow faith when your faith is built around simply the stuff that you get from God. That's a shallow kind of faith. When you pray something and then God does that thing that you wanted, that builds a shallow kind of faith. A deep faith says, even when I pray and I don't get the thing that I want, I still have faith in God. That's a deep kind of faith. 
Come on, how many seasoned believers are here today that know that sometimes you pray for something and you don't get that thing? That's what builds a resolute, kind of resilient, deep faith that God is after for us. And I, I pray for things all the time that don't happen. I want you to know, I just, I, I think there's someone here today, I know there's someone here today who thinks that when you pray for something and that thing doesn't happen, that that's got something to do with you and your righteousness and your goodness. That's not the case. That's got nothing to do with you. Your responsibility is to pray and to release that to God. And what God does with that has no bearing on yourself. That's got nothing to do with your own goodness and how much you deserve that thing. I just need to tell someone today, that's not even in my notes. I just need to tell somebody that today, that, that what God does with your prayer has nothing to do with whether you deserve that or not. And so there are times when I pray for someone's healing and then they don't get better and they pass away. There's been times that I've prayed for people to come back to life and they're still dead. There's times that I've prayed for restored relationship and those relationships are still broken. It is possible for you to pray for things and God to say no. If God simply says yes all the time, that builds a shallow kind of faith. I want our church family to be full of believers that have deep, resilient faith. And the best way that we can build that is when God says no. You know how sometimes you can look at kids and you know that they've never been told no? right? It's good for people to be told no every now and again. I love telling my kids no. Dad, can we go get ice cream? No. It's one of the best things that you can do for your kids. It's one of the best things that God can do for us is to tell us no. No. So this happens to all of us. And this is exactly where these teenage boys were, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They have a resilient faith that says, I know that God is able, I believe that he will, but even if he doesn't save us, we're not gonna bow down. Even if he doesn't, I'm still gonna stand. Even if he doesn't, I'm not gonna bow down because I know what God, God has called us to. Deep faith says that God, you can do whatever you want to do and I'm okay with that. You have deep faith when you accept that the story that you are living is not the entirety of the story that is being written. And sometimes we live our lives thinking that my story, that your story is the only story that's being written. A deep faith says that God is writing a beautiful story and we get to play a small part in that. And we don't see the full expanse of what is going on. And so I'm able to live my life knowing that my story is only a small portion of that story. That's how we get a deep faith is knowing that my story is a small portion of the overall story that's taking place. And so these boys have resilient faith. They say, I believe that you can, I believe that you will, but even if you don't, I will not bow. Even if you don't, I still have my faith that is found in you and I will not bow down. And spoiler alert, these boys get thrown in the fiery furnace and God saves them. They do not die. But their decision to not bow down is a decision that was not made publicly. It was made privately. 
These guys were not trying to make a scene. They weren't trying to protest. Sometimes when we think about people that are pushing against culture, when we think about people that are, uh, that are pushing against the expectations of society, we think about people that are uh, protesting and people that are loud and people that are bombastic and people that are argumentative. We think about these kinds of people. This is not what these guys were doing. These guys were going about their lives, living normal lives, simply not bowing down. Going to the grocery store, music starts playing, I will not bow down. Going to the bank, the music starts playing, I will not bow down, while everybody around them is bowing down. Going through the neighborhood and music starts playing and everybody starts bowing down, I will not bow down. And sometimes when we think about doing something for God, we think about doing something big for God. And God is looking for a people that are simply okay with saying, I'm going to make sure that I stay standing with all the normal stuff that I have going on. In my normal life, I will continue standing. I don't have to do something big and audacious. I'm just going to continue standing and being faithful in the normal and the small and the mundane things. I will not bow down. This is the type of person that God is looking for. When you say privately, God, I will not bow down, you can stand publicly. It's impossible to stand publicly for God if you don't sit privately with God. And so many of us try to make a stand publicly, and this is why so many people fall publicly, because you have no private connection with God. You cannot stand publicly for God if you don't walk privately with God. And I love that, uh, that all this starts with a decision personal decision, a personal conviction that I will not bow down. That's the question that we have for ourselves today is, will you bow or will you not? Will you accept the standards of our culture or will you not? Will you celebrate the things of God or will you celebrate the things of the world? Because revival takes place when chapter three of Daniel takes place in me. When what we're talking about in this portion of Scripture, when this gets into us, this is when revival begins to take place. A personal conviction. Not a public demonstration, a personal conviction. Because what I've found is that God doesn't often move in your marriage if you don't first let Him move in you. God is often not going to move in our church if he cannot first move in you. God is not going to move in your workplace if he first doesn't move in you. God wants to move in you privately before he moves in us publicly. And so you hear people talking about how America needs to repent and America needs to repent. Sure, but first, we need to repent privately. God is calling us to private repentance, to a, a private shift in our focus, in a turning privately. This is what God is calling us to, not a public display, but a private conviction and a private turning. This is what God is calling us to, because ultimately, God goes where he is desired. You know this, that God goes where he's desired? Revival breaks out when we desire it to break out. That means that we get to partner with God. I'm not saying that we control it. I'm not saying that it's a formula, but God goes where he is desired. And so when you think about God and you think about what he thinks about you, yes, I know that God loves you. 
Yes, I know that God is proud of you, but when God thinks about you, does he think there goes a person who desires me? Does he think there goes, a, there goes a guy, there goes a gal who desires me? There goes a person who desires me in private and isn't just showing up to church on a Sunday celebrating me, but is desiring me privately. Do you desire God privately? Because God goes where he's desired. So if you do desire Jesus, would you stand with me today? If you desire Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you want Jesus, revival breaks out when we pursue God privately, when we don't just want him publicly. This is our heart, is that revival would begin with us individually. Not even just with us corporately, that revival would begin with us individually, uniquely, personally, that God would do something in you specifically. It's gonna happen when you desire God above all else. You cannot make a stand publicly if you aren't connecting with God privately. And um, I know that so much of this message is about pushing back against culture and pushing back against the media and pushing back against society and the, the normal of what the world says that we should accept. It's about not bowing down to the world, but there's the potential that you're here today, whether you're in the room, whether you're joining online, and you have never bowed to Jesus. And if that's you, if you've never accepted him as Christ, which means Messiah, if you've never accepted him as your Lord and Savior, today is your day. Today is a good day because you get to make yourself right with your creator. If you've never made a, I'm not talking about, about physically bowing. You can do that if you want to. I'm talking about a heart posture that says, Jesus, I need you that says, Jesus, I want you. And there are things that you can pray and there are things that you can say that are involved in repentance and turning. Essentially, the prayer says, Jesus, I need you. And if you've never prayed that before, you know that today is your day. I'm so excited for you. In just a couple moments, I'm gonna ask you to do something really bold and to raise your hand. The reason that we do that is because when you say yes to God, you're also saying yes to his family. You're also saying yes to the people of God and you're coming home into a spiritual family. And so today is a great day for you because you get to join the family of God and you get to become right with your savior and with your creator. Today's a special day for you. It goes like this, you just have to say, Jesus, I need you. And so in this moment, on the count of three, I want you to raise your hand with me so that we can celebrate and so that we can pray with you. On the count of three, I want you to raise your hand if this is you. One, two, three. Come on, look at this. There's already people that are raising their hands today around the room. God, I thank you for what you're doing. I thank you for it, God. I thank you for it, God. For those that are in the room, for those that are joining online today, hallelujah. And for the benefit of those that are coming to know Christ for the first time, let's all pray this together. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I want you. Jesus, I bow my life before you today. 
today I say that you are God and I am not. I'm sorry for the stuff that I've done and I need you to clean me. I need you to fix me. I need you to restore me. And I receive you into my life. And today is a good day because I declare that I am saved, that I am saved, that I am saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. 